Are you lost in the chaotic whirlwind of day-to-day busyness? Do you yearn for a deeper sense of meaning and purpose in your life? Welcome to Be You, Your Story, Your Purpose, the podcast dedicated to empowering women on their journey of self-discovery and finding their true purpose through their own story. I'm your host, Brenda Simmons. Welcome everybody to the Be You, Your Story, Your Purpose podcast. And today I have a special guest on. Her name is Bryn Randall, and she has so many things that she is doing and they're all super exciting. She's got an after-school program that she runs. She does her own podcast, but most especially, she is working on a project called Austin University, and I'm going to let her tell her story and how she's involved in all three of these things and um, a little bit about her own life, so let's get started. Thank you so much, Bryn, for being here. I so appreciate you taking the time out of your day and to to just share with us your story. So I'd like to start out by um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your story? Uh, so <clears throat> I have a background of over 30 years in theater. Um, and I, I started acting in theater when I was four. Um, and I think that kind of really led me down the path that I'm on. So a lot of my path involved performing in, in one way or another, a lot of creative, different things like that. Um, being in the spotlight is not something that I shy away from. <laughs> so, so I think that kind of led me down a whole, a whole path that way. That's awesome. So was it you asking to be in theater when you were little or was it your mom saying this is a good summertime activity because I've done that I think it was kind of more of a summertime activity thing so uh we lived in California and uh there was a traveling theater company that would come the Missoula Children's Theater Company would come and uh, my older siblings had done it so uh, I'm I'm number six of seven so a bunch of my older siblings had been doing it. So when I was old enough, I was, when I was four, I was a poppy in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that was my first, my first stage role. Right. Um, so they let me be in the show when I was little, but I didn't have any lines to just pop up and go, hee, hee, hee. <laughs> I thought, I bet you felt really special doing that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> And then I did the the plays uh, every year after. And then we moved to Utah when I was about seven. Um, and we met a lady in our neighborhood who did plays. Um, and she would do the rehearsals and everything out of her house. And um, she would perform wherever she could rent a space. Sometimes it was like church buildings or sometimes it was wherever. Um, so I did some with her. And we also had another lady in our neighborhood who used to be a professional ballerina. So she taught ballet for free at the church building twice a week. Wow. I did ballet for two, like I did ballet for 10 years with her. Wow. Um, so yeah, we actually had kind of a cool neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. You, you moved just to the right spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, we got to do a lot of performing stuff um, and it was all free because my parents were not very wealthy and so um we tried to find anywhere we could do that and then when I and I was homeschooled for most of my upbringing mm-hmm. um and I did also go to a an LDS private school 
called Liahona. And at the time, they mostly had what they call distance learning students. So they would like, they had limited um, class space and then they would film each class and send it out to people. So people in Texas could also have LDS homeschooling oh, wow. and stuff like that. Um, right. So, anyway, so I did distance learning, <laughs> even though I was actually close to the school, I did distance learning. And um, when I got to high school, I did, because they mostly just did core classes, English, history, science, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I did extracurricular stuff through the local high school. So I did theater, choir, that kind of stuff through Mountain View High School in Orem. Fantastic. Um, and so I kept doing more, more theater. And then I got a scholarship to UVU. Well, it was UVSC when I started. <laughs> and then it was UVU while I was there. <laughs> um, I got a scholarship for theater while I was there and just kept doing more theater. <laughs> and that's how I met my husband. So... That's fantastic. So tell me about what you've been able to do post-graduating, how you've been able to incorporate theater into your life, because obviously it's like, it's been a massive part of your life, your entire life, pretty much. So like, so tell us how that has morphed into these other projects that you're working on. Yeah. So actually I didn't graduate. I, while I was there, I was not very good so while I was there, the scholarship program was extremely demanding, and um, it was very hard for me to get good grades while working on my scholarship hours. So in exchange for scholarship, they used to have you do like a certain amount of hours in the scene shop or the costume shop or whatever. Yeah. And then also, depending on what other classes you had, those were more hours. And it ended up being like, 90 hours or something I was supposed to do in a semester and I was like that's a lot this is so much I can't do homework I can't do anything and then at some point I was like you know what people don't cast you for having a degree (laughs) I was like I'm just gonna take all the theater classes and get better at theater and then leave (laughs) so I I actually didn't graduate I met Brian my husband um he was in the film department technically but I met him through a show so uh UVU had a show that was competing in the regional competition Mm -hmm. and that year it was held at SUU in uh Cedar City right and uh he was technically a musician um, it was it was Shakespeare's The Tempest, and he was a musician. Um, so there's a, if you're not familiar with The Tempest, um, there's a creature called Ariel that's kind of mysterious and like magical and whatever. And every time Ariel would come on, they would play this really creepy music <laughs> that went with it. And um, Brian plays the saw. Like okay. the saw, he plays it with a bow, like a violin bow. Yeah. And um, he uh, he was playing the saw for this competition down at SUU. So even though we went to the same school and he was technically a little bit part of the theater department, I didn't meet him till we were at SUU in competition. And oh, wow. I went, down, I went down as an observer. I wasn't part of that show. Um, and after I watched him do that, I was like, dang, that was so cool. So I went over to him and I was like, I have never seen anyone do that. That was awesome. And he was like, oh, thanks. And that's how we became friends. And we were actually friends for like two and a half years before we started dating. So 
That's um, awesome. What a yeah. great story. Yeah. And he graduated in film and he kind of pushed uh, like he graduated the same semester we got married. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of pushed me to do more creative things than I wanted to do. I still had friends who did theater stuff. I had a, a friend who was a playwright, so I did plays with him sometimes um, throughout the years. After we started having kids, it was a little harder <laughs> to do yeah. theater. Um, but I, um, Brian, about 10 years ago, Brian and I were talking about um, Jane Austen and how much I love Jane Austen and everything. and. And uh, I said, I I really wish somebody would make a modernization of Pride and Prejudice on a college campus. And he was like, well, you should just write it yourself. And he was like, but that's not really, that doesn't really have a hook. You would need like a really good hook to go with it. And I said, well, sometimes I think it would be really cool if all of the books were combined. Um, Yeah. And you could see Emma Woodhouse be friends with Lizzie Bennet and all these different Mm -hmm. things. Brian was like, uh. he was like, <laughs> that's a hook. a hook right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he only knew what he had seen me watch occasionally, so he wasn't that into Austin at the time. Right. He was like, he was just mindless. He knew how big Austin was, how big the fan base is, yeah. everything. Yeah. Like, this would be, this would go crazy. So we started working on it ten years ago. I called. I immediately called my friend, uh, Carrie, and she at the time was living in Arizona. She's moved all over. She's moved like 60 times in the right. 14 years she's been married. <laughs> like, wow. kind of, but um, she was living in Arizona at the time. And I was like, you know, what? we could do this distance. It'll be fine, like over the Internet for now. And we started yeah. writing. We tried to bring in our friend Chantel, but she was doing some stuff. Um at the time. And she joined us a few years later. Um, and I think that she really pulled us together. Like Carrie and I are very, very creative and, and like not easily contained. <laughs> if that makes sense. And right. she is very creative also. And she, and we all have a very similar way of talking and a very similar sense of humor. Um, and, but Chantel is very detail oriented and she's very good at like She's very good at research. She's very good at organizing. She's very good at like planning stuff out. Um, mm-hmm. So she really brought us together to be a really good team. And then um, three years ago, like a month before COVID, hit, we met with our writing coach. Okay. Somebody had referred us to this writing coach and uh, we paid a private tutoring fee with her and she just took our writing just like through the roof. She was an incredible coach. I loved her. Um, and she still works with us on this project because she loves it. She loves this project so much. Um, and, you know, if we somebody buys the series, we want to bring her on as a consultant, like, because she's just been she's so- She's been there from the beginning. Right, right. And she, even, even she can't tell, none of us can tell who wrote what line at what point. Like- <laughs> I was wondering about that because- people will have different tones in the way they write. So how does that work when you guys are, are writing together like that? It's funny. Not us. We, we don't have different tones. <laughs> That's um, awesome. There is, um, An- Angie, our writing coach has told us many times, she's like, I've never seen a team work together as well as you guys. I've never seen a team this 
like enmeshed. Like I've never, like, I can't tell who wrote what we can't tell. If we go back to an episode we've written, like, and it's been months or years or whatever, and we look at it and we we just laugh and laugh and we're like, who wrote that line? That's hilarious. Right. And knows who wrote it. But it was obviously one That's of us. phenomenal. That's yeah. so great. How has your writing coach helped you specifically? I, I think that's so amazing that you're able to get that kind of a help. So what, what difference did it make? Um, she taught us some really basic um, fundamentals and structure in, in, in story structure and how to like peak interest and everything like that. Um, part of the fee when you do her course um, goes toward you being part of uh, her writer's workshop, which mm-hmm. she usually does annually, but because we signed up right before COVID, they didn't have it for a few years. So they finally restarted it in January of this year. And we went okay. and it was in Salt Lake County somewhere. And um, it was three days and we did two days of prepping and prepping and prepping. And it was, it was a pitch conference is what it was. Okay. And then the third day, she had a bunch of publishers and um, a producer come and you did all your pitches with them. And, and before they come, she sends all the pitches to all of them and they say who they want to meet with. Um, yeah. And so, so we got a chance to do that and, and we didn't just pitch Austin. We pitched, um, several other TV shows that we have pilots for, um, because this has been such a long process and a delayed process. There were definitely times where we were like, well, we have nothing else to do. Let's write a new pilot for a TV show. <laughs> and it just kept our creative brains going. And it also took it off of Austin because you can only look at something for so long, right? Before right. you're like, I cannot look at this anymore. <laughs> like, please yeah. don't make me look at this anymore. So, um, so we- You know written- what? I have actually heard of that where other TV shows, TV show writers will take another TV show and say, you know, when they're just like, their brain is maxed out and they'll say, let's write an episode as if we were writing for this TV show and, um, and how it, it just really helps those creative juices flow. Like, Oh, now I've got an idea for ours, you know? So did you find that to be true for you too? Um, a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, one benefit of this all happening during COVID is that um, we wanted to have the whole first season ready before mm-hmm. anyone wanted to buy it. We had we wanted it to be done, polished, ready to film. Um, and so as we would write episodes, we had a ton of actor friends who would hop on Zoom every week and we would read through the script so we could hear the lines, make sure they were things were going well, and then we would have their feedback at the end and we would go back and work it again. But then after all of that, we were like, okay, <laughs> no more of this. Like, this has been a lot. We've been spending a lot of time on this and we just can't look at it anymore. And then we would put that aside and we would do a bunch of other pilots. We did a pilot for the Hardy Boys. We did, um, you know, there just hasn't been a good TV adaptation of the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, like, ever. Ever. Uh-uh. <laughs> The best Hardy Boys TV show was in the 70s and it only lasted three seasons. And it was every other episode was Nancy Drew. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Nancy Drews were awful, like just <laughs> terrible. There, I don't know what, what it was, but like they went through three different actresses for Nancy Drew. The writing was terrible. It was nothing like the books. The Hardy Boys was like the books. Nancy yeah. Drew, 
not so much. I was like, what is happening in this TV show? Which is so interesting because those were so big. Those, you know, so big. And so they continue big. to be so yes. big. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so we wrote a pilot for the Hardy Boys. <clears throat> we did Hardy Boys before Nancy Drew because the Hardy Boys books came before Nancy Drew. Mm-hmm. And the publishers realized quickly <laughs> that their main fan base was female. And yeah. And so they made a counterpart to the Hardy Boys that was Nancy Drew. <clears throat> so we made the Hardy Boys first, and the intention would be to have two intertwining TV shows that are Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, but they meet up occasionally and solve cases together. So, right. That's fun. Um, we did that. We wrote a, a reboot for The Rockford Files, which is an amazing 1970s TV show. If you haven't seen it, you should. <laughs> I haven't seen it, actually. <laughs> I think I've only seen it on rerun, though. Yeah, we made an amazing reboot for that. Um, and we, uh, Terry also had some really good ideas. She's a very big Agatha Christie fan. So she wrote a pilot for Agatha Christie that combines Miss um, Marple with uh, Poirot. And they solve cases together. But the main character is actually Agatha Christie herself. She follows them and she writes her books as she follows them in the cases. Right. Right. Um, so that's very fun. And um, there's another one that, that we are, are having trouble naming, <laughs> but we just call it the revolution one. <laughs> so basically, she took all of French literature, even though it spans different time periods, mm-hmm. took all these most famous French literature books, uh, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, Phantom of the Opera, all these different ones, and combined them. <clears throat> so the, the the idea is that the main character is Marguerite, um, so the Scarlet Pimpernel's daughter. Okay. And it's after the Scarlet Pimpernel has died, and she's reuniting the League. But most of his League has died, so she needs her own League. <clears throat> so she comes across all these different people. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, who's not really a hunchback. It's actually a way he smuggles children out of the prisons. Oh, so um, creative. <clears throat> Um, yeah, the Phantom of the Opera who lives in the sewers uh, of Paris and is, um, you know, helping people that way and <clears throat> all these different people that she brings together. The Count of Monte Cristo, I would say, is the other main character. Um, he helps her bring these people together and, and do all these cool things. But anyway, um, it's a very fun pilot, um, but a very expensive pilot as it's period. It's period, right. <laughs> Honestly, those are two of my, The Count of Monte Cristo and The Scarlet Pimpernel are probably my favorite classic literature. I love, love, love those books, though. Yes. That's, I'm, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want to see this one, too. <laughs> yeah, you would love this pilot. It I would totally fun. love it. And we workshopped these pilots with those same people over Zoom. We would have these yeah. Zoom calls and, and workshop these pilots and everything. And And our writing coach helped us get those up to a good place. And so we pitched a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, uh, there's a, a story about Amy Sherman Palladino, who wrote Gilmore Girls. Uh-huh. She got this pitch and she went in there and she pitched all these different stories. And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then she was feeling desperate at the end of her pitch meeting. And she yeah. just like, and I have this other TV show that's about a mom and a daughter. And they're really more like best friends than mom and daughter. And they were like. Oh. oh, get us that pilot. And she was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I will. As soon as I get <laughs> Shooting <home>. from the hip. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, 
I think the idea for us was to have a bunch of pilots ready to go. If yeah. people are like, yes, we love Austin. Do you have anything else? We could be like, why? Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> so how did that meeting end up? The pitch meeting. So the producer who came, she initially was supposed to have two or three producers at pitch conference. Um, but something happened. I don't remember what happened. There were flights and things that were a problem. But anyway, the only one who ended up coming was our producer who was already attached to the project. Oh, that's funny. It gave us a chance. It gave us a chance to pitch our other pilots to her. And she's like, oh, I think I know people who would be interested in some of these projects. So that was awesome. Um, But she's been trying to help us find funding for a while. And she's, she's at a point where she's close. (laughs) But um, yeah, so that's fantastic. And we'll, and we'll get into the funding piece of it, but I'm curious how, how did it work to modernize all of these Jane Austen characters into a university setting? How did it work? Was that the question? Yeah. How, how are you able to, what was that process of modernizing these characters? So the process really was the first step was to read all the books. Cause I actually, when we had this idea, none of us had read the books. We just were fans oh. of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. You know, I actually went through all of our books yesterday preparing for this. And I was like, I think I've only read Pride and Prejudice, but I've read that like five times. So I, I mean, I've read I them a few times now, but <laughs> it, over the years, it's been a few times. And the, um, So the first step was to read all the books and what I did as I went, because this was before Chantel was brought on board. um, I wrote down all the plot points of each book just by hand, (laughs) wrote it all down in a notebook. Then I would watch, we would pick one movie adaptation for each story that we liked the best. And I would write down the plot points for those movies. Then I made a color coded system. So for our purposes, Pride and Prejudice is green, Sense Sensibility is pink. Everything we do, we've color-coded that way so that as soon as we see it, we know this is Sense of Sensibility. This is Mansfield Park. So everything yeah. stayed those colors for 10 okay. years. Wow. <laughs> so on green note cards, I wrote all the book plot points and all the film plot points on, you know, one plot point per card, per index card. Yeah. And they were in order numbered. And they would say in the corner, was this a book plot point, a movie plot point, or both? And they were in order. And then we would put them in order and we would divide it up into seasons. Yeah. So we had all these cards and we'd be like, okay, this is a good stopping point for season one. This is a good stopping point for season two. And then, you know, we did that with all of them. And Carrie, we bought this cork roll is what we called it. Um, I'm sorry, honey. So for Carrie, we bought this cork roll and it was like, I don't know, six feet long or something that she could put on her wall and put all the different cards up so that we knew what had to intersect where. Wow. Yeah. And then we knew, okay, season one has to be about, it can't be more than 13 episodes. Right. Um, Right now, seasons are very short, tend to be eight to 10 episodes. Um, But you know, when we started this process 10 years ago, 15 episodes was acceptable. Um, But yeah, they've just gotten shorter and shorter, but basically we've come to the conclusion that we can't make it a shorter season than 13 episodes. There's not enough time for an appropriate arc for all of the stories. Right. 
So, um, so we broke it down into episodes and then Carrie would write the first draft of the episode. And then, um, I would go in and make a lot of changes and we would make changes together. And, and at this point, we're at a point now where we've started writing season two. And now Carrie, what, what the way it works now is Carrie writes a map, an episode map. Okay. Um, where she says, these are the things that have to happen in episode one. These are the things that have to happen in episode two. This is kind of like a general paragraph about how I envision that thing happening. And then we can go into the episode map at any point and be like, I can write that scene and write it out. And then it's there, you know, and then Carrie doesn't have to write everything. <laughs> um, and we all get a chance to write stuff, but we blend so well, it, it doesn't matter. And we have such a good map to go by you know, that it just doesn't matter. That's such an amazing process. And it, it really helps you to, to understand why it's taken 10 years to yeah. get to this point. You know, in that 10 years, was there any time when you just thought, oh my gosh, this is just taking forever. Is this worth it? <laughs> yes. But, um, but it's also been fun. And our biggest concern really has been that somebody else would have this idea. It's not a copyrightable idea. I mean, to an extent, yes. So Jane Austen is in the public domain and, right. you know, anybody could really have a very similar idea. Now we've, we've, that being said, we've copyrighted our episodes. So if anyone tried to steal it specifically, right. we have a case, but the other thing is it, it just feels like, and we've come across projects that were similar that have given us heart attacks, um, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is, if someone would, like were to hear about our story now at this point and be like, I'm going to do that first, they would have so much work ahead of them to do it, even a halfway decent job. Yeah. That they really couldn't beat us to the punch at this juncture. <laughs> like, right it would be less expensive for a studio to buy out our show than to steal it from us at this right. point. <laughs> wow. That's, you know, what a sense of accomplishment, you know, and stick to itiveness, you know, to get to this point and see, oh my gosh, it's because you're, you're filming now, right? Yes. We begin filming in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about the fundraising for it, because it's, you know, putting on a, developing a pilot and paying all your actors and, and everything around it, that it's not cheap. So how, how do you go about doing that? So um, we looked at a lot of different avenues. And like I said, we have a producer who's been trying to secure funding, but basically we got to a point where we were like, we're going to crowdfund. And she was like, great, do it. If I get money before then, I will let you know, but you do your thing. Um, and it also was a way for us to, to announce to the world, this is what we're doing so that nobody else, because we were starting to get panicked that somebody else would announce that they were doing this. Um, so crowdfunding also helped with that. Right. So we did, we hired a crowdfunding guru. Um, he's called the Kickstarter guy. <laughs> yeah. He knows a lot about all the various platforms. He knows the, the, all the things you need to make, a successful campaign. He has a 97% success rate with crowdfunding films and TV shows. Fantastic. Um, so he trained us. He told us what we needed to do. We listened to him. We launched our crowdfunding in May. And um, there was a whole ton of like personal family 
uh, stuff that was happening with Brian's family. And it just ended up being a terrible time. And we couldn't focus on everything. Everything was just too much right then. Um, and it was going really well, which is a bad thing. Um, but also in that time, a few other amazing things happened. One, a studio reached out to us and said, hey, we saw your Kickstarter video and uh, we want you to submit this project to us when you're done. Fantastic. So, like that was just our video to announce what we were. Like, right. <laughs> wasn't right. anything super special. Um, and uh, also during that time, um, we brought on board the girl we hired to be Mary Ann in our project turns out what is a, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> dang, just lost the word. She does like, um, social media marketing. Okay. Um, and we didn't know that when we hired her, <laughs> we just hired her to be Marianne. And she was like, let me, we had, we had like a thousand, I want to say we had like a thousand followers on Instagram when we mm -hmm. brought her on board. And she said, let me and her friend who is playing um, Fanny Price, mm -hmm. um, she was like, let us take over the social medias. And I was like, uh, okay. Please, right? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yeah. a source of great stress for us. Right. So we, couple, we, we paused our campaign. We took a couple weeks off to deal with family stuff while we let them build the social medias. And uh, over the course of maybe five days, we went from a thousand followers to like 25,000 followers. Well, and I was looking yesterday. I think you're up to like 50, aren't you? Yeah, I we're all right. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So we've gone up quite a bit in the last few months. Uh, and that has been hugely beneficial because it's proof to any studio wanting to buy it that there is a fan base. Following, right. Not, not that there isn't proof out there. We've done a ton of research on Jane Austen and the minimum that any TV at, or a film adaptation makes on a Jane Austen thing is uh, three times its money back. That's the minimum. Wow. Um, even the truly, truly terrible adaptations like that you can think of like the LDS Pride and Prejudice is absolutely awful, but we still watch it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> It's I don't know. Terrible, I don't think you can beat the Annie Colin Firth version yeah. of Pride and yeah. I mean, hands down, that's going to be and the there's, best. And there's forever. so many strong <laughs> feelings, right? So many people preferred the 2005 with Kira Knightley, or so many people yeah. preferred 1995. But beyond those two, there's not really a strong contender. But right. there's all these cheaply made, crappy versions, but slap Jane Austen's name on it, and people will show up. Right. And and there's proof we 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 have all these research all these research numbers on that but always minimum of 3 times its money back yeah. so it's basically jane austen is as safe a bet as you can get in hollywood yeah. there's absolutely no reason a producer should look at that and be like that's a hard pass i'd like to not triple my money right now um, <laughs> like there's just no reason for that right Right, right. A few years ago, we sent it to Amazon. We actually got a pitch. Um, we had a connection to the guy over bringing in new content at Amazon. He loved it. He showed it to his team. They all loved it. They came back and they were like, look, we absolutely love this show and we hope somebody buys it from you, but we literally just spent our entire budget on procuring something and we don't have anything else right now. So yeah. then, then... A year and a half later or whatever, Rings of Power was announced. 
And if you know very much about Rings of Power, it was a multi-billion dollar deal for Amazon. The, and um, that's probably what it was, huh? Yep. The Tolkien yeah. estate made them sign a contract for five seasons. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was literally no budget for anything else. Yeah. They went all in on Rings of Power. And so um, they were all very sad. They gave us tons of great like feedback and everything. They were like, this is amazing. We all loved it. We all laughed. It was amazing. But we just don't have the budget right now to buy it from you. And so that was really sad. Yeah. But, <laughs> but ordinarily, you're never going to put this on a platter in front of a producer and have them be like, no, yeah. <laughs> that looks like too safe of a bet. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's awesome. Been a process, but yeah, the crowdfunding. We talked to our guru about pausing our campaign and waiting until we built an audience. We talked to our social media people, and both of them had said, "You know, ordinarily, I feel like I should say, no, don't pause a campaign that's going well and everything." But like you're right, there's a few factors that are good to restart it. So we restarted our campaign in July. And it went through August and we made our money, but we, we lowered the amount because we got feedback from the studio that reached out to us about what we really needed to turn in. And it was oh, less okay. than we thought. So we were planning awesome. on turning on our whole 45 minute pilot and mm-hmm. they don't need a whole pilot episode. They said just 20 minutes is enough. So we've been trying to cut 45 minutes of pilot down to 20 minutes. Yeah. And that's been a whole thing. But Yeah but yeah, rewriting it and all that. Yeah. That's amazing. So what does that process look like? Once you, once you create a pilot and then you, you sell it to a studio, is that how that works? Will you go through that, that process? So it it was already leaning this way, but since COVID it's been more so Um, studios don't want scripts anymore. They just don't, they don't want to read them. They'd rather watch something. I mean, wouldn't most of us. A lot of the times it's faster to know if you're going to like it, Um, especially in a job where you have to either read a billion scripts a day or watch a million TV episodes. I feel like I'd rather watch a million TV episodes. Right. Because it takes some of the brain work away, right? Yeah. Trying to imagine. A few minutes of watching a show, you can tell if you hate it. Right. And then you can be like, no, turn that off. Right. But that also introduces a lot of other factors, too, because it doesn't depend on your actors as well. Like if they do a, a crappy job, that could really hurt you. But not just your actors. It 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 depends on your uh, your DP, your director of photography, your lighter, your sound guy, yeah. all these different things that might turn somebody off. So it is a little bit trickier in some ways because right. you're not just showing what you as a writer can do. You're presenting a whole product. Exactly. Um, but that's what most studios require now. And we talked to our producer and we said, could you shop around a 20 minute version? And she was like, oh yeah, that's fine. So we can submit it to the studio that reached out, but we can also give it to our producer and have her shop it to other studios too, and just find us that awesome. deal. And she also told us that she has another distributor interested. So we have two people interested and they haven't seen it yet. They haven't seen anything yet. They're just, the concept is intriguing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's super cool. That's, that's really amazing. cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So what's, if you could wave a magic wand, what, what are your hopes and dreams for Austin University? <laughs> 
If I had my pick, I think Amazon would actually be the best place to put it because um, we actually have an entire business plan attached to it that would work on Amazon. Right. Could it work for someone else? Yes. But Amazon already has an online shopping experience. Um, Got it. Yes. So we've also considered, you know, Netflix and say Target could partner up and do this show together and put our business model in and it would work really well for them. And they would end up competing with Amazon quite a bit. Right. Um, But in the long run, I think we may not go with a big studio because we'll have less creative control and we don't want people telling us you need to throw nudity into this or you need to do whatever because part of our big selling point, and honestly, I think one of the reasons that Amazon was interested is because we check a box that not many of their shows do. A lot of Amazon shows right now, their original content is either TV mature or it's like, bubble guppies (laughs) yeah like it's really little kid content there is no middle ground what about those young preteens and teenagers and families that want to watch shows together that you know they don't necessarily want their 12 year old watching naked people on the screen and swear words every other minute and you know things like that there there has to be some content for families and I think that's a big reason that Amazon was interested because they knew they didn't have anything like that and we want this to be a show moms and daughters can watch together. And mm-hmm. and we've made the men in the show a very accessible. We've we've workshopped this with other men. We've we've made sure that the men are very relatable and interesting and the characters themselves. It's 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 a story that at first I feel like most men when they hear Jane Austen are like, oh Jane Austen, how it's nice. Out, right. Um, yeah. Right. We're done. But we workshopped this before we even had our our writing coach. We workshopped this with um, my sister-in-law's high school theater students. So we did a staged reading at Alta High School in Sandy. And um, we brought in all these theater students to read the parts. And I, at the end, I said, how many of you have read a Jane Austen novel or seen a book? Maybe a couple of the girls, Okay. I said, how many of you now want to watch a Jane Austen movie or read the books? And all of them, including the boys, raised their hands. They were like, I have to know what happens next. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of our, our deal. We're bringing Austen to a younger generation. We're making it available and accessible to families. But we're also making it available and accessible to dudes. Like, this is the big, <laughs> big market that's of awesome. people. I, I, I have never met a man who sat through the 1995 Six Hour Pride and Prejudice and hated it. Yeah. I've never met one. But Every, just getting them to sit down and, and yeah, do it, right? If you can convince them to watch the whole thing, they love it. It's hilarious. Why wouldn't it you? Is. It's not exactly the rom-com that it's painted to be, you know? Right. Is right. it a love story? Yes. Is it so much more? Yes. So much more. Yeah. <laughs> like every single character is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I love it. Well, it it just sounds like you guys are on an amazing trajectory. And I just know in my heart, you guys are going to be successful. I, I think it's super, super. Thank amazing. you so much. So I, I'm curious, you know, while you're doing all of this, the Austin University stuff, you're doing other things, too. Right. So tell us a little bit about some of the other projects that you're working on that don't involve the writing and producing of um, TV shows. 
a few years ago, my friend Sarah, who lives in my neighborhood, called me and she was like, have you ever seen True Calling? And I was like, no. I, actually, Sarah and I are known in the neighborhood for having all the movies. If one of us doesn't have it, the other one probably does. So when people want to borrow a movie, they don't go to the library or anything anymore. They come to us. Yeah. <laughs> They'll that's post awesome. on the page and tag us and be like, who of you, which of you owns this yeah. movie? <laughs> so she calls me and she's like, have you seen the TV show called True Calling? And I was like, no. And she was like, would you like to? And I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was like, I have no information on this TV show. I don't care. Um, and she was like, I want to start a podcast about TV shows that are canceled too soon. So we started as a podcast called Series Scrapped. And um, each season is about a different TV show. And we go through episode by episode uh, and break down the episodes. And then at the last episode of the season is always kind of a wrap up, like our favorite episodes, our least favorite episodes, mm -hmm. why we think it didn't last, <clears throat> things like that. So we've done, we've done True Calling. We've done a TV show called Moonlight. Um, that's a vampire one. That was really good, but it was one season. <laughs> the downside to all of these is we're bringing all these TV shows to you, but they're all canceled. Right. <laughs> that's like, it's like disappointing. Very unfinished home. endings. <laughs> so what's the consensus on why they are canceled? Are, is it various reasons or is it, is there like a, a trend? Yeah, no, it's, it's different for all of them. We did Firefly and a lot of factors went into Firefly getting canceled. We personally think that um, there were executives that didn't want it to succeed because when it aired, it was airing at the same time as Friends, which was already an established TV show and yeah. very popular. And all the episodes aired out of order. Um, so interesting. You had no idea what was going on from week yeah. to week. <laughs> um, and like, it was just, it was nuts. There were several factors, but it, it feels to me like a uh, studio espionage, like somebody at the studio did not want this to succeed because That's it has such an enormous loyal fan base. Like Firefly is everywhere. When you go to things like um, Fanex or um, whatever, like Firefly is it's everywhere. It's a yeah. huge deal. And it had one season in the nineties or early two thousands. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, That's amazing. It's such a big deal. Yeah. So we interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we did True Calling, we did Moonlight, Firefly, The Grinder, um, and and I think we just did the Napoleon Dynamite animated series. Okay. Finished that one. And that's our first season that we filmed it too. So we we'll put it on YouTube now. Yeah. Before it was just a podcast, but now we've been filming it. And then we'll announce our new season soon. So that'll be that's fun. That's fantastic. Yeah, so awesome. I do that with my friend. And um, I also am directing shows at my kids' charter school. <laughs> That's fantastic. But I didn't have, I had too much free time. Well, <laughs> and you do the after school movie yeah, oh, yeah, too, yeah. right? Um, so with those same kids from the charter school, um, I became very close with many of the middle schoolers. And I said, I am a huge classic Hollywood film buff. Um, I love old Hollywood anything pre-1970, you know, um, love it. And I was like, what if we, uh, what if we started a film club? And I knew 
with middle schoolers and even some elementary kids in the group, I was like, your parents are not going to be like super on board if I try to do more modern movies. Right. There's too much like, meh, you know, yeah. and even some older movies, there's some iffy ones. Or there's great movies with one scene and you're like, uh, like, well, even like some eighties movies, like I've gone back to watch them and go, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much was in that. Like, and my kids were sitting there watching with me. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my goodness. That's just, it's, it's rated PG Yes, because it was pre PG 13. Right. And so, so everything was either PG or R, you know, or whatever, like, and you were like, right. no, there's a middle ground here. Yeah, yeah I, I watched a, an 80s movie and it was PG and I was like, this will be fine. And I turned it on and it's like a solid minute of frontal nudity. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, and it's so funny how, you know, when we watch those things as kids, like I totally didn't even realize how, but, but, you know, when you're sitting there watching it with your kids, you're super uber vigilant over some, you know, and aware of stuff like that. And it's like, ah, this is not what I want to be showing my child. Ah, sorry. Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so I, I, I basically sat down and I figured out a film club where I could, I, I, I figured I could do basically 10 movie nights in a semester. Okay. So I do eight genres. I, or seven genres. I do comedy, drama, Western, film noir, suspense, action, and musical. Um, and then there's always two subgenres in a semester. And in the fall semester, like we are now, those two subgenres are always monster movie. It's like the semester. For Halloween. Right. Yeah. And um, Christmas movie. Right. So, so, and then in the spring semester, I can do whatever subgenres I want. Like last semester, I, or yeah, last semester I did beach movies um was one and then road movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope because there were so many road movies yes um but it like there's any kind of like next semester the two will be actually they'll both be um remakes um so during the regular genres I have like our drama is Sabrina with Audrey Hepburn and mm-hmm. one of our remakes, we'll watch the newer Sabrina, the nineties Sabrina with her. Right. That's um, awesome. So that we can kind of compare the remakes and see like how or why they maybe remade this, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so and- what's, what is your, um, how, how is it received by these kids? Cause you're, you're basically at an elementary school charter yeah. school right or does it yeah. go up to eighth grade it goes to ninth um ninth. okay so you've got elementary up to junior high right yeah, so it's how a, it's a k how through is that ninth, received? But yeah it's a k through ninth school but i don't typically encourage kids younger than fifth grade to join film club because older movies and study tech like the technicality of film and and the art of film is not very interesting to kids younger than fifth grade right so you're talking middle school, junior high age. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's received very well. And and generally with each movie, I tell them fun facts about the movie. Like these are things that happened when it was being filmed, that kind of thing. Um, I also tell them film things. Like the one that we talk about the most is set up and payoff. Right. We watch these movies and they're like, well, that was terrible. And I'm like, why was it terrible? You You can absolutely hate a really good movie 
And you can yeah. absolutely love a really bad movie, but you have to know the difference. This is what I tell my students. Like, right. You have right. to be able to say when you come out, yes, this was well done. Yes, this was well done. Yes, this was well done, but I hated it. Right. Okay? Personal preference. Like I can't argue with that, but you have to know it was well done. Yeah. You can't just be like, I hated it. So obviously it was a bad movie, you know, right. <laughs> that's not how that works. Right. <laughs> so I've been teaching them principles like the setup and payoff. Um, one of my examples that I give my kids is Ant-Man. Ant-Man is, um, but you could also use Into the Spider-Verse part, like the very first Into the Spider-Verse movie. Right. Some of the tightest scripts in Hollywood. Everything in there is a setup and payoff. Everything. Um, and so a setup and a payoff is like, uh, have you seen Ant-Man? I have. Yes. There's a, a scene in the first Ant-Man where he sets down the keys and there's a little tank on there. And later he blows up the tank and throws it. Right. That's mm -hmm. a payoff. Right. Why did we see a shot of the tank on the keys? Because he was going to throw He's it. He's going to use it later. Right. right. <clears throat> there's a rule. So, every, so a setup and a payoff is kind of a foreshadowing. <clears throat> right. And then it actually happens. Right. And my okay. example of a terrible one is Frozen. Okay. Because Frozen is full of setups with no payoff and payoffs with no setups. Okay. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain really quickly a few ways you could have fixed Frozen. Frozen to me feels like it was written in two weeks. They were just like, give me a movie about two princesses. Go. Right. Like, because princesses sell, right? Yeah. <laughs> two princesses. Go. Like, right. Okay. <laughs> Um, so here's a couple of things that they did wrong. Um, Prince Hans, no matter how many times you watch it, there is no setup for him being evil. It's going to take you by surprise every time. Every time. Like, right. What? <laughs> yeah. When a villain is revealed like that, you should always be able to go back and watch it and be like, oh, I should have seen this coming. I should have seen this coming and I didn't. That's oh. a good villain reveal. Right. No matter how many times you watch Frozen, you're like, nope, still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, there's no setup for him. There's no payoff for Elsa singing Let It Go. When she yeah. sings Let It Go, she's letting go of the wrong thing. She's letting go of everything. And that yeah. was absolutely the wrong lesson for her to learn right then. But right. that's okay if she sings a reprise of it at the end where she sings about what she should have been letting go of and the lesson she learned. Yeah. Did she learn a lesson? Yes, we kind of get the hint that she did, but we don't explain it in a reprise, and we should have. Right. Uh, I also think Anna should have reprised Love is an Open Door with Kristoff. Mm -hmm. um, same reason. That yeah. was a with no payoff. Um, the trolls <laughs> had very little of anything to do with the story. They were just there. <laughs> They right. needed, yeah, they needed more purpose and they needed a good payoff at the end. Yeah. But like, there was just too many things that it was like, what? Like you should never at the end of a movie be like, what about this? And what about this? And are we never going to talk about this again? Like, right. <laughs> you should never feel that way at the end of a movie. Um, wow. And so if you watch Ant-Man or you watch Into the Spider-Verse and you watch all these setups and payoffs and you think to yourself, this is why it's a very satisfying movie to watch. Because there are like no loose ends. You know what I mean? And you can go back and watch them over and over again and find more and more things that you missed. And it just, it makes it just yeah. as exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and there's, there's a difference between intentional loose ends that they're leaving for like a sequel, right? Right. 
or just loose ends that they were like, and we'll never bring that up again. You know, <laughs> well, you take the Marvel, like yeah. just the, the very last scenes, like the scenes after the credits. Right. Yeah. And how that, that told is a major setup for the next one. You're like, Oh, now I have to see the next movie to, right. to finish it off. Right. So, right. Yeah, yeah. Well done. So, so these are the things that I teach my middle schoolers and they, get so excited. Um, one of them texted me after she had watched the new Spider-Verse and she was like, have you seen it? We have to talk about the setups and payoffs. We have to talk about this and this and this. They've been applying it to other movies that they watch. And I love that for them. That's they are awesome. getting really, really good at determining what was wrong with this movie. What would have fixed it? What was great about this movie? You know, and, and we talk about those things every movie we watch, but they're also getting exposed to various genres so that they can find that w- what they like. Do yeah. they like this actor? Do they like this director? Do they like this genre in general? You know, most of them we've found like suspense. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's been their favorite one. And so generally the last week of the semester, I have them do a student's choice. So they vote on their favorite genre. And then I give them a couple options from that genre to choose from. And we watch that. That's so fun. So yeah, I love it's that been really, really fun. So what is, what's a film that you think everybody should watch? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it kind of depends. I, I feel like one, one that I was really excited to show them is called All About Eve and it's a Betty Davis movie. And I was excited to show them this because <clears throat> there are some very interesting friend dynamics in that movie. And, uh, it, I had a friend like that and it was, a source of great drama for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that showing them dynamics like this, unhealthy, toxic friendships like this at such a young age where they're starting to form some of their long lasting friendships for life, Mm -hmm. um, especially as they move into high school. And, you know, some of your friends from high school, you'll never talk to again, but some of them you might talk to often, you know, you might end up with that group for the rest of your life. And you need to be able to pick out unhealthy, toxic behavior. And that is one that I was very excited to show them because it just took some twists and turns and they were like, what? And I was like, yes, people behave like this. I know I had a friend like like this in college. You know, people are like this and it's awful. And you need to be able to see the signs now before you make those friendships, you know? That's awesome. I love that you can bring in life lessons with this, you know, and, and really teach them, you know, through the film, through doing something that they enjoy doing, you know, okay, these, these are the lessons that you can take away and apply to your life. So that's, that's pretty amazing. So you, I'm just so amazed at all the things that you do. And I just think you're just an amazing person. And I love what you're doing and what you're accomplishing after school programs. I've, you know, a soft spot in my heart because I used to direct one myself. And so I know what kind of influence you can have over people, you know, kids, kids, especially when you just take the time to to spend time with them, you know, and, um, but I'm curious, you know, looking at where you're at right now, think back on some pivotal moments in your life, like what, describe a pivotal moment that you had that really put you in the, the right place to where, to where you are right now? Uh, that's so interesting. <clears throat> I think one of the biggest pivotal moments for me was 
meeting and or marrying Brian because he's been a, a crucial part of my progress. He's been encouraging me. Um, he's been supportive. He's, he's helped me learn more about film and about, you know, because it's his profession and it's my profession, we're able to work together. And that's one of our favorite things. And um, we've learned so much together. He also likes watching movies. We love watching old movies together and being like, oh, this and this and this. And, and that, I mean, because it's our profession, we learn so much from movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And we love doing that together. But honestly, Brian has been a huge part of that before I, not before I met Brian, but before I was engaged to Brian, I was engaged to somebody else, um, Mm -hmm. a friend of mine that I had grown up with. And I see now that that marriage would have been complacent. Um, We would not have been able to push each other in the ways that I think both of us needed pushing. And that hasn't been true with Brian. So I'm, I'm grateful that my life has gone in the direction that it has. And I'm grateful that I married Brian because he's been such a crucial part of all of these choices for me. He, He is the reason that I, started Austin. He is the reason I'm able to do the theater program at school. He's the reason that I started doing film club and like all these different things. He's been a huge part of encouraging me and helping me like balance out like who's got the kids while I'm doing all right. this. Right. <laughs> so he's been, he's been supportive and, and helpful every step of the way. It's so amazing that you have a partner like that that can um not only support you but stretch you as well so that's that's really I have found that has been um it's really crucial part of of any relationship I think really is you know and the ones that that do make you stretch while supporting you are the ones that not only will celebrate you but then also say okay this is where you need to be better too, you know? So that, that's pretty amazing. That's awesome. All right. Another question for you. Um, how does your work and you can, you can look at all of it. How does it bring meaning like personal meaning to your life? A lot of the middle schoolers that I've made connections with are all female. And I think that they, they feel through, through our bonding, through the plays and through film club and all these different things they feel like they can come to me with problems. And I got to tell you, middle school is hard. I was homeschooled for middle school, but I saw my friends go through hard stuff. And I think it's so much worse now. It's so, so much worse. And I see these kids going through these things and they text me and they're like, this person is very toxic. They're sending me all these messages and I'm here. I'm supportive. I'm a friend for them. I've had one of them, one of these ninth graders tell me that I'm her best friend. (laughs) and and her mom knows it's not like a weird relationship her mom knows um and she feels comfortable telling me things she doesn't feel comfortable telling her mom but I know that if she tells me something her mom needs to know I am close enough with her mom also that I can go to her mom and be like look she's dealing with some things you know and I can encourage her to tell her mom or her teacher or whoever is involved you know and I think it puts me in such a good place to help these kids through some of the hardest years of their formative time, you know, 
where they're dealing with so much and there's so many things going on with sexual identity. And plus kids in middle school are just mean, like all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's been like that for eons. Yeah. And I don't even think half the time they mean to be mean. They just are going through their own things and they're having a lot of hormones and a lot of emotions. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they lash out. I lash out sometimes when I'm going through things. Right. And, and it's hard when the people you're lashing out at are also going through things and feeling emotionally vulnerable and stuff. So, I mean, there's all these different problems and I'm glad that I can be like a safe space for these kids. And they come to film club and they feel, the most of them have told me, they feel rejuvenated because they're in a yeah. safe place doing something super fun that has no bearing on anything. They're not getting graded. They're not getting tested on this, but they're learning and they're making friendships and they're having a relaxed like time where they just get to be and not worry, you know? And I love that. I love that too. So looking at your story and your life, the way it's, it's played out, what do you feel like your purpose is? Um, I think in, in some respect, I think it's to teach, to, to, bring new perspective. I have a very unique way of looking at things I've learned. Yeah. And uh, my life has led me to a point where most of the time things just roll off me. I'm like, I I don't care what you think. And I don't, Yeah. like, like things just really roll off me. I don't hold a grudge. Even when I get super mad, I'm super mad for about 20 minutes. And then I'm like, eh, well, it is what it is. You know, awesome. <laughs> things really just roll off me very well. And I think that bringing that, that form of education to people, like that way of dealing with life or looking at life or things like that is, is a big part of my calling. And I get to show that in my plays, in my TV show that I'm writing, in my film club, in my podcast, I get to show this, this vibe of how I go through life, just not holding grudges, not caring about things that don't matter, you know, caring about people in general more often than not, you know. That's beautiful. It really is. And I and I love how you can have a passion for something like what you do with theater and film. And yet your calling, your purpose is teaching, you know, and that's just that becomes the avenue of doing that. And so I that's Truly beautiful. I love that, Bryn. Thank you. Awesome. All right. So I want to be able to share with our listeners and viewers where they can find out more about Austin University, where they can reach you if they want to contact you. Will you share that with us? Yes. Um, So Austin University is on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Um, And it's just at Austin University. And we're on YouTube. Um, and, um, so that's where you can kind of follow the project. We're going to be posting a lot as we film a lot of behind the scenes stuff. That stuff is going to be really fun. Um, I think we'll still have a couple more character takeover days. Um, that'll be really fun. And, um, uh, aside from that, I also have my series scrapped podcast, um, that's on Facebook. You can find it. We don't do a lot of posting on Facebook about it, but you can find the podcast on most podcast podcast platforms and soon it'll be on YouTube. Um, and let's see what else. 
I don't know, you have middle schoolers in the Utah County area and you want to join film club, <laughs> hit me up. All my, right. personal, my personal Instagram is Bryn Dalton Randall on Instagram. So wonderful. And I will post links to this in our show notes as well. So it'll make it easier for people to find you. So awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bryn, for sharing with us your life and your passions and your calling. And it's just been an amazing conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Celebrate your dreams. Let them take flight. For you are a star shining bright in every step you take. Let your